Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, where we gather to confess that truth that we hold in common, in Concord, you might say, because this truth of Jesus Christ matters. As we do that today, I am guest host, Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, sitting in for regular host, Pastor Sean Smith from Wine Hill and West Point in Illinois. Please keep Pastor Smith and his family in your prayers. Uh, he and his son, uh, two-year-old son, had a fall, and his son is recovering from some injuries there. Uh, but Pastor Smith is looking forward to returning uh, before too long. And in the meantime, I am here uh, getting to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you and with our guests. Today, we are blessed to have with us Pastor Bruce Kaseman from Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, to talk about the Nicene Creed and how this creed and this confession of Christ's church matters for the church today and for us today. Good afternoon, Pastor Kaseman. It's good to have you with us today. Good afternoon, Pastor Ill. It is a joy to be with you and to confess the faith that we do share together. Concord Matters. Indeed. Well, today, as we get to talk about the Nicene Creed, it starts with the question, as we're going through the Apostles' Creed, and today the Nicene Creed, and then next week the Athanasian Creed, what's unique about the Nicene Creed, and what does it particularly bring into the life of the Church and the life of a Christian that the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed might, might not point out quite the same way? So I suppose at first glance you would look at it and go, well, uh, the Apostles' Creed is short. It's kind of like the Reader's Digest condensed version. And the Athanasian Creed, that's really long. That's like the expanded annotated version. And the Nicene Creed is kind of in between. But there's really a lot more than just the length that differentiates these creeds. They confess the same faith, to be sure, but they uh, do it for different reasons in different ways. Uh, you probably talked about last week how the, the Apostles' Creed is a baptismal creed. It was developed uh, to be confessed by the one who is newly baptized, the one who is being adopted into God's kingdom, and to say, this is the faith that I confess along with the entire church. By contrast, the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed are, a, are developed not as a baptismal creed, but rather in opposition to false teachings that arise in the church. So the Nicene Creed, uh, which was first developed and, uh, and spoken at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and then was more fully stated in, uh, in a form much more like what we have today at the Council of Constantinople in 381, the, the Nicene Creed is developed in opposition to 
especially Arianism, that had developed as a false teaching and was going to lead people away from Christ. There's a difference then in, uh, it, it's developed not in local settings, it is developed by a council. And the intention at the end of the council was not that this creed be used as a, a statement of faith within a worship service, rather it was signed by all the bishops or all but two of the bishops who were present at the Council of Nicaea to say, this is what the church believes, teaches and confesses. There's also a difference between the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, even though both are developed in opposition to misunderstandings, misstatements of the Christian faith. They are, it's expressed in different ways. The apostles in Nicene Creed each have three articles that focus on, well, you could say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you could say creation and preservation on redemption, on the sanctification, the keeping us in the faith. The Athanasian Creed does not have the three-article separation the way the Apostles and Nicene Creed have, and I'm sure you'll talk about this in much more length next week, but it's comparing and contrasting the relationship between the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, saying these are the things, these are the ways in which um, they are the same because they are one God, and these are the ways that they are distinct because they are three persons. So what does the Nicene Creed bring to us that's useful for the church to have? It's a concise summary of Christ's divinity, especially in contrast to false teachings that were in the church at that time and frankly are still in the church at, uh, in, in our day today. It tells us this, this is the precious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God who, who has made us, who has bought us back, and who wants us as his own for all eternity. So what were some of those false teachings in the time of the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople that were uh, problematic. Um, okay, so let's start with one I already mentioned, uh, a man by the name of Arius, who lives around 300 AD, if you want to be more specific, about 250 to 336. He is a pastor in Egypt near Alexandria, and he teaches that Jesus, that the, the, the second person of the Trinity, isn't really a full person of the Trinity. That the, that the Son is not God in the same way that the Father is God. So he, he is, what Arius is trying to do is to express um, biblical truth, that there is one God. And in so doing, he, um, he falls off the horse into a ditch on the, on the opposite side of the road of what he's trying to confess by taking away the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus. So, Pastor Kaseman, I had just a little bit of technical difficulty, and I want to make sure that I that I heard this because I think it's really important. You were yeah. saying that Arius had a confession that Jesus or that the Son of God uh, wasn't uh, fully God, um, 
and that he was uh, saying that uh, that Jesus was uh, pretty important, maybe even the first being created by God, but not God himself. Is that right? That's precisely right. So the way Arius would say it was, there was when he was not. There, that is, there was a time when God the Son did not exist, because like us, God the Son is a, creature, a, a creature, though he is unlike us, the first of the creatures, and then um, maybe participated in the creation of everything else. But it, you see how that then, wh- why is this important? Because if Jesus is not fully God, then we are not fully bought back uh, when Jesus dies for our sin. So um, what he's really doing is is defending the oneness of God, but missing the full divinity of the Christ. So Arius is, is opposed in Alexandria by his bishop. Remember, Arius is, a, is like a parish pastor, a presbyter. And he's opposed by his bishop, whose name is Alexander. That's right, Alexander of Alexandria. Uh, and at this point, Alexandria is, um, is fairly well known, but there's also another person who is opposing Arius, who is standing up for the biblical faith, and his name is Athanasius. Athanasius has a creed we know now named after him, but at that point, he's pretty unknown and not very influential at all. In fact, he is not even a pastor. He's a deacon in the church. But Athanasian argues, and biblically so, if the Father was not truly God, then he couldn't truly save mankind. And hey, Athanasian, Pastor Kazeman? You bet. Is that... Is that- uh, if the son was not truly God, then he couldn't save mankind? That is correct. Okay. Yep. If the son is not truly God, he can't save mankind. Um, so Athanasius is, is stressing that you don't have to believe in two deities to believe that Christ is not a creature, but he is the creator. So um, Arianism is um, condemned by some local councils, uh, one of them at Alexandria, but Arianism begins to um, uh, to rise pretty significantly. And, and we might think, well, this can't be that big of a deal because we think of it as something like, oh, Jehovah's Witnesses today, which is a danger to the people who follow it. But it's not like it's about to become the dominant uh, opinion of Christ uh, among people who call themselves Christians. But in the in around 300 A.D., Arianism was threatening to become the predominant uh, understanding of Christ, and it's contrary to Scripture. So Emperor Constantine, when he becomes emperor in 324. Um, decides his kingdom needs to be united on this. He's a Christian, and he he's not sure what the right answer is, but he considers this to be a pretty trivial doctrinal point, when in reality it's anything but trivial. And he calls this council at Nicaea in 325 AD to begin to 
to deal with Arianism. Um, so uh, do you, any other, before I go to, in, to some other heresies that are also addressed in the, in the Nicene Creed, do you have any other comments or questions about Arius or Arianism? Um, I don't think so. You you did a really nice job of laying out for us uh, what it's similar to today, kind of that denial of Jesus as being um, a person of the Trinity in the same way that God the Father is a person of the Trinity, uh, but being much more influential in that day and time, so that it was uh, much more focused on uh, on the impact to the whole church than uh, a more minority movement might be today. So that's really helpful. What else was going on in the time of the Council of Nicaea? Okay, so now the next uh, heresies that I want to talk about arise mostly after the Council of Nicaea and aren't addressed by the Council of Nicaea, but they are addressed in the fuller um, Nicene Creed, which if you really want to be technical, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, because it's confessed... It's kind of a mouthful. Yeah, yeah, you could tell. It was more than my mouth could handle. It was developed both in... Uh, beginning in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, but then expanded, or maybe even... It, it's possible that Constantinople wasn't even using the creed from Nicaea as its beginning, it may have used a different creed, but it's confessing the same faith as Nicaea, but it's it's um, beginning to deal with some other heresies um, that are both in terms of, of the second person of the Trinity, but now a new one on the third person of the Trinity. So let me start with um, some heresies that have to do with the second person of the Trinity, and, and without bogging you down with several different heresies that are similar. Let's just call these modal, the various kinds of modalism. That is, we're understanding that the Son is truly God. So they're, they are, uh, they're confessing exactly what was confessed at Nicaea. But they're saying that this one true God is like, oh, like Superman. Um, at times he looks like Clark Kent, and then he jumps into his phone booth and he comes out as Superman. And then he gets back into his phone booth and he comes out. So at different times he manifests himself as the father and at other times as the son. And depending on the heresy, you might add also, he manifests himself sometimes as the Holy Spirit. But it's not three different distinct persons, but rather it's like three costumes that the same guy wears. This is contrary to what we see at Jesus's baptism, when three distinct persons of the Trinity are there. The Father is in the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit is coming down in the form of a dove. And Jesus, the, the Son of God, is in the water being baptized by John, all three present at the same time, not in three different modes, but in, um, in as three distinct persons 
but one being, one true God. Okay, so there's the modalism uh, is one of the kinds of heresy that's going on. And then the other one has to do with the Holy Spirit. And uh, the main guy who is, uh, who's teaching this um, is a guy by the name of Macedonius. And he's suggest he's taking what Arius said about the second person of the Trinity, that he's not quite fully God, and he's saying the same thing about the third person of the Trinity, that is, that the Holy Spirit isn't fully God, that he's an energy or a force of God um, who's, who's at work. And so the Council of Constantinople in 381 is going to have to deal not only with Arianism, which had been suppressed at Nicaea in 325, but then rose again before the Council of Constantinople in 381. But it also has to deal with these people who have gone off on the, uh, in the other direction of modalism with regard to the second person of the Trinity. And it has to deal with people who are saying the third person of the Trinity is not fully God. So that gets us to the through the controversies and gets us to the actual council. Um, anything that needs to be clarified there? I don't think so. This does seem to be uh, pretty heady, though. Um, and I, for our listeners today, I don't think that we always uh, grapple with questions quite this same way. And so it might just maybe to restate a couple of things that as Arius, uh, who was uh, called a, a heretic or of guilty of confessing this heresy, uh, and maybe that's a good point that we should pause for. How are, how are you using the word heresy, Pastor Kaseman? And uh, how do we use that term appropriately in the church today, um, maybe without getting carried away about it, but fully understanding the importance of, of calling something a heresy? So if it's a heresy, it is outside the realm of what Christians believe, teach, and confess um, in such a way that it causes you not even to be a Christian any longer uh, by, because of the confession. Now, why are we worried about this? Because we're nitpicky? No, but because we care about the, the salvation of souls. So what's going on here? If Jesus is not fully God, then he can't fully pay the price for our salvation. Um, this could get dangerous, but let me give this a shot of, of giving you an illustration of why. When I was, I don't know, 12 years old or something, I had a baseball card collection. And I lived in the Kansas City area, and everybody in our neighborhood had a baseball card collection, and everybody in our neighborhood loved the same player on the Kansas City Royals. He was the shortstop by the name of Freddie Patek. This was before the days of George Brett. And uh, my, my uh, next door neighbor had a huge collection of cards, far, far bigger than mine. And I thought that collection of cards, old baseball cards, um, like from the 60s, ah, that was really old to me because we were already into the 70s by that time. And uh, I, I thought that was a pretty cool 
uh, set of cards, and he thought my Freddie Patek card was a pretty cool card. And uh, we agreed that we would make a trade. His old baseball cards, all of them, for my one Freddie Patek card. I wasn't sure that I wanted to go through with this because I treasured that Freddie Patek card, but I went ahead and made the trade because I thought it was an even trade. And I, don't, I suspect he had the same feeling. I don't think either of us thought we got uh, the better deal out of it. I think we thought it was a pretty even trade. But you see, I got his whole collection for one card. He got one card, took the place of his whole collection. Because Freddie, that Freddie Patek card, which, by the way, was a very cool Freddie Patek card. It was a horizontal card with him throwing somebody out when most baseball cards of the time were, um, were somebody batting at the plate or just standing there. So it was like an action card. But my point is that one substitutes for all because that one had such great value. Jesus is not God. He does not have enough value to substitute for all of us. He could substitute for one of us uh, by, by illustration here. If I'm in jail, let's say I owe a fine at the court of $1,000. I can't pay it. But Pastor Ill says, I'll pay that for Bruce. The court accepts the, the payment of uh, of Pastor Ill on my behalf and says, paid in full. Well, isn't that what Jesus is doing? But now let's say, um, uh, uh, let's say that um, seven other people also owe $1,000 and Pastor Ill says, or oh, I forgot what I said, $1,000 will make it that. Yep. So Pastor Ill says, I'll pay off, I'll pay $1,000, and that ought to take care of the debt of all these people since each of them owes $1,000. And the judge would say, no, you have to pay for each of them uh, separately. That's $8,000, $7,000 for each of these other people and one for Kazeman. Well, what about Jesus? If Jesus is only a human like we are, then he can substitute for one of us. Because what do we owe? Our entire life. And when he goes to the cross, he'll pay that for Pastor Ill or for Bruce Kazeman or for somebody else in this world, but not for all of us at once unless he is God. Then he is of sufficient value to pay for not one of us, but all of us. This is the this is why it is so essential that we um, that we make the distinction that the Council of Nicaea makes in the Nicene Creed. That makes a lot of sense, and I really think that that illustration um, is helpful. Uh, the big difference between, say, your collection of uh, your uh, Freddie Patek baseball card and your friend's collection of all of his old vintage baseball cards is the worth that you had assigned to them. But when we start to talk about Jesus, 
think it's fair to say that it's not because we think that Jesus or anybody else thinks that Jesus is more significant than um, than my sins or your sins, but rather because Jesus is um, objectively, by his own worth, worth uh, far more than any human could imagine or comprehend. God in the flesh can come and... Uh, and receive that condemnation, that crucifixion, and that suffering, not just for one Christian, and not even just for all Christians, but for the whole and entire world. Is that where you're going, uh, Pastor Kaiserman? Amen, and thanks for the clarification on that, because like all analogies, this one breaks down, and uh, especially analogies when we try to use some earthly thing uh, to, to describe who God is or what he is doing on our behalf, it's always going to come up short. And uh, and especially if I didn't think this through uh, fully before I started to, uh, to use it as an illustration. So thank you for the uh, clarification, even corrective there. Well, I, I do think it's a good illustration to see that, that Jesus is completely and totally God. Um, in the same way that uh, God the Father is God, that they are both persons of the Trinity. And uh, I, think, I think it's probably best for us to take a short break here, and then on the other side of our break, we will come back and have a chance to talk about how exactly the Nicene Creed provides that corrective and how the Nicene Creed uh, states very clearly that uh, Jesus is God it, um, and is a person of the Trinity in the same way uh, that the Father is a person of the Trinity and uh, that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Uh, so with that, we will take a short break here on Worldwide KFUO. Uh, this is Concord Matters. I'm guest host, Pastor Peter Ill, visiting today with Pastor Bruce Kaseman of Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois. And we will be back in just a moment to talk more about our common confession that we hold in the Nicene Creed. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on KFUO, as we have a chance to uh, join the program Concord Matters, and as we do that, we talk about our common confession of the faith that we have in our triune God. And today, I am guest host, Pastor Peter Ill from Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, sitting in for regular host, Pastor Sean Smith, who hopes to be back uh, here hosting the program soon. And our guest today is Pastor Bruce Kaseman of Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois. And as we study the Nicene Creed, uh, it's important and helpful for us to hear those words which go like this. 
I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Pastor Kazeman, as we get to visit about these words of the Nicene Creed, one of the things that we said before the break is that the Creed states that Jesus Uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, revealed as uh, Jesus when he took on flesh, is uh, an equal person of the Trinity as God the Father. But maybe it's helpful to start here by saying, what does the Nicene Creed tell us about God the Father, and what comfort can a Christian draw from talking about God the Father in the same way that the Nicene Creed does? Yeah, so uh, let's uh, just... Looking at that, uh, interestingly, at Nicaea and at Constantinople, the creed did not begin, I believe, because remember it was intended to be the confession of the church, which they signed. It was, we believe. But it's not inappropriate for us to say, I believe, because what we're saying is, I now have appropriated for myself this which belongs to the entire church. I believe in one God not two or 10 or three or uh, 20 gods. Therefore, um, there's no worry if, uh, about who you're going to have to pray to. For instance, what happens if, if I'm praying to the, the Roman gods and Zeus and Athena are having a fight today and I need to know which one of them is, uh, I need something from both of them. Which am I going to pray to? Because they might get ticked off if I ask both of them. No. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, all in cahoots, all working together for my good. So whenever I pray, I know who's answering. It is the one true God. And uh, we start, the first person of the Trinity is the Father. Um, He doesn't treat me as a, a subject of his. He treats me as a child of his. He has loved me. He has adopted me in the waters of baptism. He's provided everything that I need. He's constantly caring for me, protecting me, and maybe most of all, 
he is giving to me his very dearest possession. I mean, think about Abraham when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. It has to be tearing him apart on the inside as he raises that knife to slay his son. He's willing to do it, but it is not his desire. And you wonder if there aren't tears running down his eyes as he does so. And is that not even more so our heavenly father as he gives his perfect son to us? And doesn't stop the slaying as the angel did in the case of Abraham almost slaying Isaac, but rather allows it to happen on a cross at the hands of Romans and truly at the hands of us, too. That's so really helpful. A, oh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Case, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I think that it's uh, really interesting that you bring out that account from Genesis 22 about Abraham and Isaac, um, where Abraham uh, has been called by God to, to give his son, and it points ahead and points forward to God, who is infinitely and immeasurably greater than Abraham. God the Father, who is the maker and keeper of all things on heaven and on earth, the things that we can see and the things that we cannot see. And he gives his son, who is one also immeasurably better than Isaac. But there's no stopping God the Father's gift of his son like there was for Abraham. Instead, God the Father gives his son, uh, the one in his name, I think you could say, um, who is equal to him. Uh, that's a really powerful uh, thing for us to consider. Amen. And, uh, and just taking that a step further, Isaac carries the wood on which he is going to be sacrificed, at, but he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Jesus carries the wood on which he's going to be sacrificed, and he knows very well what's going to happen, and he is a full participant. I have a suspicion that in the end, Isaac might also have been a full participant. That is, um, I'm not sure that a hundred year, a hundred and ten year old man is going to be able to um, hold down his twelve year old son uh, on his own. I'm not sure that Isaac wasn't had didn't have to cooperate a little bit. But we know with certainty that Jesus cooperated. And and here's the big deal in the end. You have a God who has given that to you. And as St. Paul asks, if he has given his own son for you, will he not also, along with his son, graciously give to you everything else that you need in life? You don't have to sit and fret. You have a father who cares. In fact, he is the father almighty. At first you go, almighty, all powerful. That ought to scare me to death. But this is the God, and, and by the way, it should scare us to put to death our old sinful natures, to flee to our Lord Jesus. But in the end, because we have Jesus, that almighty power is being used not against us, but for us. This is the one who had the power to make heaven and earth, everything that's visible and everything that is invisible. He knows exactly how the, work, the world works, and he is um, speaking to us, guiding us, and using that power on our behalf. Um, 
Anything else that you see in the first article that I've missed? I don't think so, other than to to say again that the first article seems to really push us and drive us into the second article, almost almost to say that the first article doesn't carry its full weight uh, without thinking also of the second article about the Son of God. Amen. And that whole story of Abraham makes the connection for us so clearly. So we believe in one Lord, Yahweh. Jesus is the same thing. He is the same Yahweh of the Old Testament that the Father is. Jesus, oh, there's his human name. He's just as human as we are. And his name even means Yahweh saves. Tells us who he is, Yahweh, and what he does, saves. He's also the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's been promised ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin to come and crush Satan for us. The one who is to be the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the descendant of David. The one who is to be born in Bethlehem, everything that the scriptures say about him, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's according to the scriptures he, he comes into this world as the Messiah. He is the only begotten Son of God. This is starting to, to describe for us his relationship with the Father. And we're starting to get into um, the, the Council of Nicaea, kind of looking at Arius and saying, let us tell you the truth that the scripture speaks so that nobody is led astray so that everybody knows with certainty who this Jesus is and what he has done for them. He is the Son of God, but that doesn't mean he is of some different substance than the Father. Nope, he is begotten of his Father before all worlds. Now understand that specifically against the Arian teaching that, G that there was a time when Jesus was not that he was the first of the, cre of the creation. But here, no, he, he was around before there was a creation. And if you want to get even more specific, he is God who has come out of God, light who has come out of light, very God who has come out of very God. Whatever it is that, that makes the Father God also makes the Son God. They are distinct in person, but they are a single God. And, and this Jesus is begotten, not made, Arius. He is not a creature. He is of one substance with the Father. Now, it's interesting. Um, at the Council of Nicaea, um, first Arius put forth, uh, apparently put forth a creed. We don't have the, like the minutes to know for sure what happened. But it appears that Arius put forth some kind of a creed and it was rejected. And then a, man, a, a church father by the name of Eusebius put forth a creed and it was accepted, but it was thought inadequate to answer the question of whether the Arians were correct or whether those who believed the biblical faith were correct. And they were trying to find some term some way of dealing with this this question of who who was speaking what scripture said so arius had a term to speak about jesus and it was homoousius 
that is of like substance with the Father. And the, the fathers at Nicaea said, ah, here's our word, because he is not of like substance with the Father, homoousius, he is homoousius, of the same substance with the Father. Um, it's kind of dangerous what they did here. They took a philosophical term and that is not does not appear in scripture, and they used it to to express the biblical faith. If that's all they did, I think it would have been inadequate, but they fill in around it with words that are very biblical to explain what this homoousius means, that the that those who would later come along and say that God appears in different modes are misunderstanding what scripture says. He is three different persons, but they are all of the same substance. That means Jesus is capable of redeeming you. He is capable of redeeming the whole world at once. So it goes. So on. they don't. Re oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Cause I was going to the next. Yeah. So, so they don't leave us just with a philosophical word without any biblical context, but they give us that biblical context. And so I want to make sure that I have these words right, because they sound a lot alike. Arius was saying that the Son of God is homoiousios, and the other confessors holding to the biblical faith were saying that uh, the second person of the Trinity is not, not homoousios, but homoousios, being of the same substance or of the same, I guess you could almost say of the same being as the Father. It, am I getting that right? That's exactly right. And uh, so in the end, one, the littlest letter, you might say, in the, uh, in the Greek alphabet, that gets added to that word is so significant that it separates whether one is a Christian or not a Christian. And, uh, and this is, so we're arguing about one letter and it seems so trivial, but it's anything but trivial because our salvation rests on whether Jesus is fully God if, of the same substance with the Father. So then it goes on to say, by whom all things were made. Now, I don't think at this point, Arius would probably, he probably wouldn't have quarreled with by whom all things were made. But that's helpful for us because it tells us that Jesus is co-creator, that he was involved in everything that happened at the beginning of creation, just as much as the Father and the Holy Spirit were, which means that when you pray, you have a God who comprehends how things work in this world. But more than that, because Jesus, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made man. He's a human just like you and me. Now, he, he not only understands how the world works, he can grasp exactly what you're going through so that when you pray to him, he can say, I can relate. I've been there myself. And I'm able to help. It, it, us, us earthly fathers, there are times when we really, really want to help our children. And we may even know exactly what's best for them. But I can't 
if my child needs a hundred thousand dollar bailout, I can't. I, I, there's not a way that I can do that for them. I don't have the ability. But we have a God who not only understands what well, what is able to help us, but is it has the power and the resources available. So um, he is the one by whom all things were made. Now here is a, a huge key. What is it? This is, this is where the Nicene Creed gets at the heart of the Christian faith, who for us men, that is humans, men and women, male and female, for us humans and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, our salvation, to rescue us from where we would have been otherwise. But we get life instead of death. We get heaven instead of hell. We get to be children of God instead of children of Satan. That's the rescue that he has come down from heaven to accomplish. And it all required that he be incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. All of a sudden we see, yep, he's the same thing that you and I are, human. But he got there in a different way than we did. We're, we're, he's born, we're born, but he's incarnate by the Holy Spirit and therefore didn't inherit the sin that we inherit. And because he didn't, now not only can he die in our place, but he can also live in our place. He can be the perfect son of God whose flawless life counts as though it was our flawless life. That can only happen if he is not just equal to God, but also a human just like us, made man, was crucified, and here it is again, for us under Pontius Pilate. So the crucified says how it is that he paid off our debt. He was nailed to a cross. He suffered excruciatingly. He was buried just the same way that you and I are going to be buried if Jesus does not return first and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures which is to say because he lives we will live also why do we hang on to this faith and more importantly this god who is confessed in the nicene creed because we get life from him the very life that he intended us to have all the way from the beginning, right? He made Adam and Eve with eternal life. They just lost it. Now Jesus comes as Adam 2.0 and he restores it. He does the perfect life and then the substitutionary death. But he doesn't just stay on this earth. Oh, oh, and it's according to the scriptures, which is to say this was not some last minute thing that God said, ooh, ooh, uh, they're about to kill my son. What can I do good out of this? What can I accomplish out of this? Oh, I know. This is how I'll pay off the debt of all people. No. From the very beginning, this had been God's plan. He'd written it down in the scriptures. He'd revealed it through his prophets. And now it was coming to pass exactly the way that God had said. He would die and on the third day rise, according to the scriptures. And now he ascended into heaven. This is no small thing. This is not Jesus just going back to uh, sit in his easy chair in heaven and saying, my job's done. 
What's he doing now from his throne? He's continuing to care for you. He's sending his Holy Spirit to you. He is interceding for you. He is preparing a place for you. All of that in that ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father because he is equal to the Father. Ah, and he's going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. It doesn't matter whether you're in your grave or still alive. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a judgment. And at first we go, oh, that's the worst thing that could happen. No, this is the best thing that can happen. When you know Jesus, you know what that judgment is. Your God is going to drop his gavel and pronounce you not guilty by reason of Jesus. And then you will be part of his kingdom that has no end. His kingdom has already started. He's been reigning all along. And, and you're a part of that kingdom now. You're a citizen of that kingdom. You've been baptized into that kingdom. But the day is coming when you're going to see with your own eyes that you have been baptized into that kingdom. So there's the second article. Uh, fill in what I've missed, Pastor Ill. Uh, it, I have nothing missed, but I'm hearing you talk and he, uh, hearing the words of this creed uh, brings out uh, to me this idea that the creed and and the way you talk about it are kind of, um, I guess, pinballing through scripture. Uh, so as it talks about the Son of God, um, who has been present since since before the beginning, it makes me think of, of Genesis 1 and of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and uh, without him, nothing that was made was made. Um, or you could talk about Colossians chapter 1, where it talks about how, for by him, the, the Son of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Um, and then it goes on. And then as you talked about how uh, he was born, we certainly think of the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, and then into the book of Galatians. Uh, for at the right time, uh, God took on flesh, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That he died and rose on the third day, just like he said three times in his ministry that he would do. And then uh, he now rules on the throne um, as we wait for him to return. And after his return, he's going to reign on his throne forever. Um, and so in, in just a few short lines, we have, we have said quite a lot of what the Holy Scriptures say, uh, just doing it uh, a little bit more briefly. Is that right? You got it. And that's what the creeds are intended to do simply spell out the biblical faith in a concise but true way, just as Scripture teaches us. Wow. It, um, it's kind of overwhelming that uh, the entire biblical faith can be uh, summed up that concisely, but also that fully in these lines uh, of the second article of the Nicene Creed. But you had talked before that there were also questions about the the work of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. How does the Nicene Creed in its third article, or the third part about the Holy Spirit, clarify the Holy Spirit's person and his work? 
Yeah, isn't this interesting? Um, remember I said earlier that um, the Council of Constantinople's creed is much closer to what we speak today as the Nicene Creed than what was at Nicaea. The third article of the Nicene Creed at Nicaea said, and in the Holy Spirit, the end. But all of these heresies about who the Holy Spirit is and whether he is equal to the Father and the Son began to give uh, to rise. And so the Council of Constantinople, um, which occurs in 381, remember Nicaea is 325, so it's not much later, same century, they have to address the, the, the questions about the third person of the Trinity. And it's interesting that they deal with the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit in a different way. Instead of using a term like homoousius of the same substance, listen to how the, the confessors at Constantinople expressed that the Holy Spirit is fully God. He is the Lord, Yahweh, the one who made heaven and earth. He is the giver of life. Isn't that true? The spirit was breathed into, by the way, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for spirit and breath is the same word. So God spirited into Adam life, breathed into Adam life. And this is the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He's also the one who gives us the life that Jesus purchased, right? The, Jesus purchased it at the cross. The Holy Spirit comes and he's the delivery man. Um, my uh, my grandma, actually my grandma-in-law, still had a delivery person in my lifetime who would bring her groceries from the store. This is what uh, Jesus made the payment. And now we have to have the delivery made, the delivery of forgiveness, of life of salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's what he uses. Baptism, his word, absolution, all of those gifts for. And he proceeds from the Father and the Son. You'll talk, I think you're going to talk next week about that addition of the word and the Son. Now watch what the, the confessors say, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Whatever worship is due to the Father, is also due to the Son, is also due to the Holy Spirit, because they are all equal. This is the Holy Spirit who spoke by the prophets. He was speaking God's word, but he spoke by the prophets. This means when you read the scriptures, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, you're hearing God's word, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you to strengthen your faith, to keep you in the one holy Christian and apostolic church. Not ten, one. And it is holy, set apart. It is Catholic. It belongs to the whole of Christianity. It is apostolic. It teaches the same thing that those apostles taught. And, and it is it's made yours in the one baptism that delivers to you what Jesus purchased, the remission of sins, so that you get to look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And now, isn't that totally backwards of what anybody would say? I Everybody in normal they would say, I'm looking forward. Actually, I'm not looking forward to the end of my life, to being in the grave, 
But this creed says, I'm looking forward to the end of my life because there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and a life of the world to come, which is to say, when I die, there's going to be rest for my soul. I'm going to be with my Lord. All of my difficulties will be gone, but there is still a yet more glorious day when my Lord Jesus returns, raises all the dead, reunites my body and my soul, and I get to live with him in a life back with my body again. I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait to hike in heaven in the beautiful woods where I can see and smell all of God's goodness and all of his creation, but that's only possible, and I can only enjoy a great dinner if I have a body, a nose that can smell, a, a tongue that can taste, skin that can, can touch, I need a body in order to enjoy life the way my Lord intends for me to. And he says, there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, a life of the world to come with this body back with mine again, all because not only has the Father made me, not only has the Son redeemed me, but the Holy Spirit has given me that life that Jesus has purchased for me. He gave it back to me as it's intended to be, as it was in Eden, it's going to be for me for all eternity. So in short, this is the work of God, that God, the Father, made the heavens and the earth and everything that is, that he sent his only begotten son, even as John 3 says, to take on our flesh, not to condemn the world, but to save it, not only the world, but you and me. And that through his suffering and death, through his resurrection and his reign over all that is, Jesus Christ our Lord continues to rule over all things, and the Holy Spirit delivers this good news, the gospel, to you. And so as you hear this good news, the Nicene Creed declares the gospel of God that we agree in and that we confess together. And so thank you, Pastor Kazeman. Uh, for being our guest, joining us from Christ our Savior in Freeburg, Illinois. Uh, it has been my pleasure to get to visit with you today. Uh, I am, once again, Pastor Peter Ill from Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, sitting in for regular host, Pastor Sean Smith. And we will gather again next week to continue to celebrate this faith that we hold in common because our concord matters. But in the meantime... Keep confessing, church. Hey.